This is Encounter with God here on The Breakfast Show. We are ready to get into our 20 million movement Bible study. 20 million people all studying the same passage of the Bible at the same time. We don't really have any major announcements to make at this particular time, so I think, Angela, we should just launch straight into it. Okay, so our Bible study today starts in Acts chapter 4, but we're actually going to start it in Acts chapter 3 because that's where the story really starts. So, Angela, I'm wondering whether you can go to Acts chapter 3 and just sort of start reading for us in verse 1. We'll read a few verses there. So, Acts chapter 3 and verse 1. Now, Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked into the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. Okay. Let's stop there. What do you reckon? Mm-hmm. It's a good enough place to stop? Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's let's work, work our way back through the story. The Bible talks about uh, this particular lame person who is asking for arms. Now, that's old English. That does not mean uh, things with hands on the ends of them. That simply means arms in old English simply means uh, charitable donations. So basically, he's a homeless person. He's a beggar. This is not an uncommon sight to see this kind of thing if you're in a developing country somewhere in the world. And that's how he lives. He lives on the charity of people who are going past. He is lame. He is not able to hold a job or to get gainful employment in any way. And this is really his only option. And he is a well-known person who typically sits outside of the temple gate and, of course, Peter and John come past and he's asking them for donations, as we often see homeless people doing today. This is not a, an incredibly, I guess, uncommon sight in you know, our larger cities. Nope. Okay, so Angela, Peter and John, they're Christians. They're going to throw some money in his hat. But... They don't have any. They don't have any money. <laughs> Which is why they say, look at us. Because look at what we're wearing. Do we look like we would have something financial to give you? Okay. Now, that's an interesting point right there. Why did they look kind of poor? Well, because they had chosen to give up all to follow a man named Jesus. So they didn't really have much themselves. I mean, there's been, you know... A heap of times that I've walked past a homeless person and had nothing to throw into their hat because I don't think I've used cash for like 20 years. Yeah. I wonder honestly how homeless have done the last 20 years since we've gone to a more and more cashless society. And if we go into a fully cashless society, what are beggars and homeless going to do at all at that point? Maybe we need to donate them card readers. Yeah, each one's going to have those little scanners. Oh, dear. Tap and go. (laughs) Tap and go right there. Yeah, I don't know. It's going to be a new challenge that uh, people who are, you know, financially at rock bottom are going to face in the future. Yeah, homeless people are such a break. It breaks my heart because it's such a difficult situation. You don't know if you're enabling them or if you're empowering them. 
um, to do something with their lives at that point when you give them money or if you're really helping them get food or if you're just hurting them by encouraging a lifestyle that is detrimental. And so you never know. And so honestly, this may sound bad, but I always feel good when I can honestly look at them in the eyes and say, no, I'm sorry, I don't have any money. But because I literally because, don't carry cash because anymore. You, because you don't carry cash and, and you don't have to uh, wrestle with that, um, you know, the ethics of... Should I or should I not give them money? Exactly. I, um, I've known a number of homeless people. I've got a good friend who's a homeless person right now. And yeah, I probably could comment on homelessness in Australia. I think it's a very different scenario is what you often find in developing countries one of the things that i've found just as an observation in developing countries is that you will get you know quite a few people who are beggars uh, obviously living on the streets and it's the ones who have the really bad deformities are the ones who get the gifts yeah and the ones who don't have that then they're not getting gifts. And, of course, then you know that creates a whole vicious cycle where you have parents who maim their children, like mm. permanently maim their mm. children, break their legs, break their arms, whatever it might be, so that they can actually gain a living because they won't get a living unless you know they have that particular deformity yes. and so it's a really, really vexed question you know what are you are you are you contributing to the problem by giving money? Or are you, you know, because all of us as Christians, we want to help people who are in need. Oh, desperately. But what's the best way of doing that? What's yeah. the most effective way of doing that? Now, of course, the disciples here, they don't have any money. They're not carrying any cash, not because it's a cashless society, but because, well, it's kind of a cashless society. It was very much a barter system back then. Cash wasn't uh, something that was used a lot. They certainly didn't have any silver or gold, but they had something much better. And what was that? Well, they had faith, a huge they had amount of faith. A massive amount of faith where they've seen this homeless person who is crippled and lame and they just say, hey, stand up and walk. In the name of Jesus Christ, Yeah, stand up and walk. You know, they had been with Jesus for three and a half years and I, I don't know how long has gone past at this point from when Jesus has gone up to heaven to now, but they're walking around with so much confidence. It's it's like they still believe at during the story you can definitely tell that they still believe that the power of Jesus is with them wholeheartedly. Um and they are just boldly saying, stand up and walk. It's interesting that it takes place just a few weeks after the crucifixion. Okay, that's what I didn't know. Okay, yeah, this is this is not long after the crucifixion. This is this is very soon after the ascension. Okay. And so when you put it into that context, uh you it 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 speaks to the authenticity of the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Because let's say that, you know, Jesus had come and said lots of good things as lots of religious leaders do and gained a following and was then crucified and then died and then somebody stole his body or the disciples stole his body and said, you know what, we don't want this religion to finish right now because we have a great opportunity to make a lot of money out of it. Um, religion is big money, so let's um, let's pretend that Jesus is still alive and he's gone up to heaven. Would you walk go walking into the temple and there is a person there who is lame, who has been lame for a very, very long time, who is very, very well known, would you have the confidence to stay, stand up and walk? He, Peter and John did. Well, they did. 
But if you had made up the religion and covered over the fact that, you know, well, um, we just kind of stole the body rather than Jesus being resurrected, would you have the confidence to call someone, you know, to stand up and walk? Definitely not. (laughs) Definitely not. And it is that level of confidence and also the confidence that we're going to find in the next chapter, which is the chapter we're really going to be focusing on, that speaks to the reality of the experience that they had. And it must have been incredibly powerful for the leaders of uh, Jerusalem at this particular time to see people who were so incredibly confident in the resurrection. Yes. Because this was not something that they had seen or something that they had heard. Okay, so let's go over to chapter 4 now. And uh, all of these events are taking place in the context of the healing of this particular individual in chapter 3. Uh, would you like to start for us in chapter 4 and verse 1, please? Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Okay, let's stop there. And uh, what we've got very simply taking place here is that they are boldly preaching about the most unlikely event you can ever imagine, and that is the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ that he's gone back to heaven to intercede right there. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Okay, so um, they're boldly here preaching about this. They've been told to not do it on a number of occasions. This particular man has been healed. You can imagine what that does for their faith. Oh, huge. Yeah. They're on cloud nine. Uh-huh. They're like, bring it. Let's do it. <laughs> I have something to say. I, um, I know that Jesus is real. I know. Yes. They've experienced it. They've seen it. And if you're the Pharisees, how do you go about denying that? Well, unfortunately, if you read the Gospels, you can see that they've been constantly denying it. So if this, isn't un- this is not new to the way that they had hardened their hearts so hard that it didn't really matter. Um, if Lazarus was raised from the dead and that story wasn't good enough, it doesn't matter what kind of healings they're seeing. They, they have completely different glasses on that just refuse for them to even see that possibly this could be truth. Bit of a commentary on human nature, wouldn't you say? Mm. Human nature tends to, when it, when it gets a mindset, a particular direction, it can be very, very difficult to break that mindset. And it takes a lot of humility to do so. Yeah. So we all need to be praying for humility. All right, where are we up to? We got, uh, I think we read verse four. Okay. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. All right. The last big mass baptism that took place was in chapter 2. Do you remember how many were baptized on that 3, day? 3,000. And how many are being baptized on this day? 5,000. Uh, <laughs> no. 8,000. No. No. I'm wrong. It says the number of men ah. was 5,000. So in chapter 2, they counted everyone. Yes, it's true. Here the numbers were too big. They couldn't count everyone, so they just counted the men. So how many would that be, do you reckon? Mm, 10 to 12,000, maybe even 15. I mean, there's probably a wife for every man. So, <laughs> And even for every single man, there'd probably be a single woman. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of them would have families. Yep. And as a result of that, there would be a lot of children. Yeah, I'd say easily 15,000. That's a pretty impressive baptism by any standard. That's incredible. That church just grew. Overnight. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. I've, um, I've been a part of some really big baptisms, but nothing like that. Yeah. 
You know, I think something else to put into context is the fact that this is um, probably, honestly, the fruit of Jesus' work. Because many seeds were planted in these people in the three and a half years that Jesus had been walking on the earth. And I think that Peter and John got to reap the harvest of seeds because these people aren't like completely unaware of who Jesus was. It's not like it's 10 years ago, 15 years ago. This is something that they have seen and watched in the last three and a half years. This man claimed to be the son of God and all these miraculous events happening and then his crucifixion and then the story of his ascension. Um, and so I think it's encouraging to us that um, you never know where people are in the journey and you might get to be the one to reap this harvest of 15,000 people. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty wild, eh? Um, imagine being able to, yeah, be a part of that particular. Yeah, I, I, it, just, it just boggles my mind to even think about it. Um, anyway, where were we up to? Five. Verse five. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's... And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Ananias, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. Okay, let's let's stop there for a moment and let's think about this. So we've got this man who is crippled and lame. He has been healed and they want to know, how did you do this? By what name did you do this? Now, surely, you know, you sort of think about it, surely they already knew because they'd already put these guys in custody and locked them up overnight. So, you know, they've been in the slammer for a whole night. That pretty much indicates that they knew. I kind of wonder why it was that they were asking this question. And I, I wonder whether when you read the list here of people who were there, you know, the Bible says Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the family of the high priest gathered together. I wondered whether this was just an intimidation tactic. They're like, you know, let's get together all of the heavies of Jerusalem and let's see if we can intimidate these guys into silence. Mm. Because, uh, you know, I think in a lot of societies that would be probably be something that would, would actually work. You know, just just overawe them with power and influence and tell them to shut up. And so it's like, okay, we're all here. This is the most powerful people in Israel. These are some of the most powerful people in, well, definitely the most powerful people in this region of the world. Okay, what are you going to say now? Who who are you going to say? Who are you you going to say now was, you know, the healer of this particular person? But you know what? With the faith of God, it did the exact opposite. It empowered them. They're like, oh, let me tell you. And not just, not that they just say Jesus Christ of Nazareth. They're like, let me just remind you whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man stands before you whole. It wasn't just by Jesus Christ. It was like, let me just go back in history and specifically point out what role you had in this man who gave us this power. Yeah, they weren't scared of this question. They were actually hanging out for this question. 
And um, and they actually gave a bolder, stronger testimony because of this question. So those who were in the court that heard it were even more like, okay, I got to think about this man. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. You think about, well, think about it from this perspective. Um, you've been living in Australia for a while now. Have you ever done something, and, and I think all Australians need to do this at some particular point, have you ever listened to Question Time in the Australian Parliament? No. Okay, before <laughs> you leave Australia, before you leave Australia, you need to listen to Question Time because this is something you don't have in American politics, and it is awesome because it can be very entertaining <laughs> at times. Um and you are Australian, so mm-hmm. this is part of your heritage. It you need is. to you need to you need to be there for some of this. You need to experience this. You need to listen to question time. And you sometimes you will see this happen in question time. And basically what it is is an opportunity for the two sides of Parliament to throw questions at each other and try and embarrass the other side. Mm. So it's like, let me see if I can come up with a really tough question that I can use to intimidate you and to put you in your place and make your particular party look like a bunch of fools. They're trying to set you up for a fall. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And every now and then, you will have somebody who asks a question and you'll get this exact... You know, often you'll often someone asks a question you know, from the other side of parliament and they ask it to, you know, I address the member for such and such and that member stands up and you can hear them squirming their way through the answer <laughs> and spinning like a top trying to, you know, bring something positive out of a very, very negative situation. Every now and then, the opposite side of parliament will actually fall into a trap and they'll ask a question that the other side, the person they have asked that question of, is actually super prepared for, has some great information on, and is like, thank you so much for asking. Let me share with you. That is the perfect question (laughs) for me to get on my soapbox and preach my message. That's right. And that's what we have happening here. Mm -hmm. They've asked... By whose name did you do this? And they're expecting, well, you know, um, uh, okay, well, there's a lot of um, pretty serious people here right now with a lot of power. Maybe we just need to tone this down a little bit and uh, squirm and spin and, you know, all this kind of stuff. But that's not what's happening here. And from the high priest's perspective, you can see how it could be intimidating because, like, I crucified this man. Do you really want to boldly say you're identified with this man? But it does the exact opposite. It's like, yes, please, let me identify with this man. Absolutely. We've got somebody texting through, listener texting through to point out that the average family size in Judea in that particular era was between six and eight children. So there could have been more than 15,000 people baptized that day. There could have been 20. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Okay, Angela, where were we up to in our Bible study? What verse did we get up to? Uh, verse 11. Okay, let's, let's, let's read down through to verse 15. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for is, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves. Okay, so interesting situation that arrives right here. They've got them, They've really worked themselves into a trap, haven't they? Yes, they have. Because they've brought the lame man in. They've got the disciples there. They ask the disciples, 
how did you heal this guy? Which has just given them a platform to preach about Jesus in the Sanhedrin. We do know that after this event that there were a number of members of the Sanhedrin who were converted and publicly confessed their allegiance to Jesus Christ and became you know, incredibly important members of the early Christian church, particularly from a funding perspective. They were, yep. you know, very wealthy. This was the this was the elite of Jerusalem. And we've got to remember that Jerusalem had the second biggest economy in the world in those days. Rome yes. was the biggest. Jerusalem was the second largest economy in the world. So when you're talking to these guys right here, they are incredibly powerful, wealthy people. And the largest part of the economy in Jerusalem was centered on the temple. Yep. Which was why the the, the position of high priest was one that was so coveted. Um, one, you know, that they would they would kill people, they would backstab people, all kinds of things would take place to be able to secure that particular position because of the wealth and the power and the influence that came with it. And so you've got this group of men, incredibly powerful, incredibly wealthy, and you have just given the disciples the opportunity to speak about Jesus. And what are you going to say about it? You've got a lame man standing here that everybody in that room knows because he's been outside the temple as a lame man for a considerable amount of time. Yeah, since his birth. Yeah. Why didn't Jesus heal him, by the way? That's a great question. We know that Jesus wanted to heal everyone, but often he couldn't because sometimes that might have cost him his life. And so he was very much connected to the Father on who to heal and who not to heal. Why the specific story? Who knows? You know, I think that Jesus, and this is this is just my opinion, mm. and if you've got a different opinion, then uh, free, feel free to give <laughs> us a call or send us a text message, um, and you can uh, share your... But this is my opinion. My opinion is that Jesus avoided this guy. Because? Because he wanted... Because this guy was so well-known, he wanted to leave him... For Peter and John to heal hmm. because it was the massive impact that it was going to have. So he's left one of the most well-known crippled beggars unhealed. Hmm. Now, there's a lesson in that. And the lesson is that, you know, we often ask God for healing. And when we ask God for healing, we want it to happen instantly. Hmm. It's like, oh, I've got the flu. I feel terrible. Lord, please heal me. And it's like we wish that it would happen that very instant. Mm-hmm. And then other times, you know, we pray for, you know, family members and good friends and so forth that might be suffering a really, really, you know, chronic illness or a terminal illness or something like that. And we ask for healing. And so often we don't see healing and we question why. Think about being this lame man. For three and a half years, Jesus has been getting around the place and Jesus has been healing people all over the place. He's healed lots of lame people. And it's almost like he avoids this guy. Because mm. we it's not like Jesus ever passed through this area. That's right. Jesus is in the area. And can you imagine Jesus walking past this guy and looking the other way? No. It'd be so hard to imagine Jesus. Yeah, I, I, I just don't picture that somehow. And so I picture, in, in my mind, it's almost like Jesus just avoids him. Hmm. And the reason is because Jesus sees a much bigger picture and Jesus sees that if... Peter and John heal this particular individual. He's going to leave this one for Peter and John. The testimony of Peter and John and this individual is going to be so much more powerful mm-hmm. 
than what it would have been if Jesus healed him. Because I mean, you know, Jesus raised, as you mentioned a moment ago, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Yeah. And uh, they didn't. They didn't believe as a result of that at all either. You know, this reminds me of, a, of an old country song um, that says, I thank God for unanswered prayers. You know, often when we don't get the yes, we wonder if God is listening or if God cares. And sometimes the best answers come when it appears that it never got answered. And I think that here, this one, this man could have been devastated. He'd been like, why? I hear about this Jesus. Why didn't I get a turn? And then he gets healed by Peter and John. And then he gets to stand before the most powerful leaders, like you were saying, in Jerusalem and testify of this Jesus Christ and be a testimony that was very loud and very bold for thousands of people. Um, and so I think that's an encouragement to us that those prayers that seem so unanswered are actually being answered in a way that's going to be beyond our dreams if we choose faith over fear, which I think is exactly what Peter and John are doing, is choosing faith over fear. This is where Satan could have won. And they could be like, yeah, I'm intimidated. They, these people are the exact ones that crucified my master. Are they going to do that to me? And they're like, no, it doesn't matter. I believe in him whether I live or die. And they chose faith over fear. Powerful statement right there. Very, very powerful statement um, in relationship to their testimony. And also, you know, I guess the other thought that was coming to my mind while you were talking about that was, you know, this was somebody who desperately wanted to be healed. And we see that in his reaction. He's not the kind of person who's like, oh, bummer, I've been healed now. I've lost my source of income. Nobody's going to help me because... You know, no, no, he desperately wanted to be healed because the Bible describes him. I love the way the King James describes it. <laughs> Leaping and jumping and shouting for joy. Yes. You know, he I don't right know if, all the way through the temple. I don't know if anyone else had that kind of testimony. I can't think of anyone else who got healed by Jesus that was jumping and leaping and praising God. And okay, and this joy. is in a public place. Mm-hmm. This is in the courtyard of the temple. There is people everywhere. He is well recognized. Everybody knows exactly who, because he's been there his whole life, crippled at the gate, and leaping and jumping and shouting for joy. That's going to catch a lot of attention. It is no wonder that as a result of his testimony that you've got 15,000 people who are, or maybe more, um, who knows, anywhere between, I'm going to say a minimum of 10, (laughs) 10 plus. Yes. Possibly 20,000. <laughs> Possibly 20 or more. Who knows how many people were baptized that day and I, I as a result of his testimony. I think that's such an encouragement to us that joy is coming. You know, especially in this world that we're living in, chaos is so strong and fear is so strong and prevalent. Um, it's scary, the economy. It's scary, the sickness. But if we believe in something greater, joy, joy is on our way. 